John would want you to know that what he writes of, this story of Jesus as he recounts it, is not something that he just heard about. It's not something that he just read about. It wasn't just kind of a one-off event in his life. John would go on to put it this way. He said, or he wrote, that which was from the beginning, which is Jesus, he's speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. I think John, the first thing that John would say is, if he was with us tonight, listen, I know you've got the manger set at home. I know you've seen the inflatables out in the yard, but I need to tell you something. I knew the man. I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. This isn't a story. It's very, very real. John would go on to write some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of John 3.16. If you've ever watched a football game, you see the sign often. Here's what he wrote. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That very famous verse, written by this very old man. If I were to go into Chester after services tonight, the first thing I would do is go and apologize to some of the shop owners that Mike embarrassed along the way, especially ShopRite. Mike is banned from ShopRite for six months, so we need to do food shopping for him. But, but after that, if, if, if once I begged forgiveness, if I asked people on the streets of Chester, use one word, give me one word, how would you describe God? I think most people would go, God, well, God is love. You know who wrote that? This old man, John. But I think if John were here with us tonight, I'm fairly confident of this based on spending a lot of time in his writing over these last couple of months. I think if you went to John and you said, John, I want you to boil down what you experienced with this man, what you felt, what you saw, what you touched, what you heard, boil it down, John. I mean, a lot of us, right, we're busy. I don't have a lot of time, John. I try to read the scriptures. I don't even have a Bible. I tried to download it once. The stupid app didn't work. I tried to read it. I don't really understand sometimes. I don't have the background. John, just cut to the chase. What's the point? Give me one word. I think John, without much of a flinch, would say, light. Light. Now, why light? I have four kids. When my daughter, Courtney, who's my oldest, when she was a young girl, my dad had a small condo in Ocean City, Maryland. It was right on the beach. It was, it was fantastic. Part of the privilege of being an owner, I loved being an owner, and I wasn't even really an owner. Part of being an owner and not a renter was that you had owner's keys, which gave you access to two unique owner's areas, one of which I was never going to use the owner's gym. I'm on vacation. Give me a break. <laughs> the other, however, was another room which I used multiple times a week. I used it every day. It was the owner's beach locker. Have you ever had access to the owner's beach locker? It is a vacation changer. 
I mean, you know, the way, this way when you're coming up at the end of the day, you can leave all of your beach stuff, the sandy, disgusting towels and blankets and chairs and the kids' toys that are glommed up with sand. You don't have to wash them off every day. You just put them in that beach locker right down there next to the beach. You don't have to get on the elevator looking like a renter with all of the sand all over you. Now, while it was pretty glamorous to have owner's keys, I, I often would just sit on the elevator with the great unwashed renters spinning them on my hand. I remember uh, that being glamorous, but the owner's locker being anything but. The owner's locker was a dimly lit, mildewy-smelling, basement-like area under the building. No windows, cement walls, and just wall-to-ceiling rows of plywood lockers. Some chain link in there, too, just to make it look a little prison yardish. And it went on for as far as you could tell. I have to be honest, even for me being in there, if I was in there by myself, would be a little bit spooky because you'd go in a ways, you'd have how many rows down? I'm four rows down, five rows, you know, five things over and two up, right? And then you'd get in there and hope nobody would lock you in or turn the light out. Well, one day, and I'm not sure of the details, if you're a dad, you know when situations like this occur, details don't really matter because they only serve to get you in trouble with your spouse later. Somehow, I left the lockers with the chairs and the toys, but without Courtney. And then the guy who followed me out flipped off the light switch and slammed the door behind him, plunging poor little Courtney Eisman into a world of darkness. I mean, guys, dark, dark like you can't imagine. Dark like hand in front of the face, can't see it dark, no light, no exit sign, no way out, just row after row after row after row of walls and obstacles. I was thinking of this story a couple nights ago. We were out to dinner as a family, and uh, I asked her if she remembered it, and she looked at me like I had two heads and said, remembered it? That is the scariest moment of my entire life. Now, God is good. We are late beachgoers. We stay up late. We get up late. We have a late breakfast. We out, go out to the beach at like noon. Most people have already gotten their stuff and headed out there. So honestly, she could have been stuck in there for a long time until the afternoon crowd decided to head back up. But the only person later than hitting the beach with my, than my family of six was my brother. And so a few minutes after me, 10, 15 minutes, I don't know how long it was. You could ask court after the service. But... Uh, my brother walks into this pitch dark, dank room and hears his little niece screaming and crying from the back. Fifteen years of counseling, Courtney is almost there. We, she sleeps with the light on, but she's almost there. She actually told me after the services the other day, she goes, actually, you didn't leave me in there, Dad. I went in there and got locked in. It wasn't your fault. Did you hear that, Joan Eisman? It wasn't my <laughs> fault. I'm telling you that because that is a very real story of, of the power of darkness and light. It was Jesus, as he spoke about himself, who would quote the great prophet of Israel, Isaiah, when he said this, speaking of himself, 
the people living in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This Christmas Eve, we've been looking at this for a month, but I want to leave you with one final thought regarding this incredible incarnation story about light and its power. As I said to you, John wrote these words much later than any of the other gospel writers. And so he is now looking back on things that were yet to happen for Matthew and Mark and Luke. For them, they were future unexpected events. John had seen, just like they had, the church spring to life. He'd witnessed the acts of the apostles. He'd witnessed the Holy Spirit descend with power. He'd witnessed miracles, healings. In fact, he would go on to write all about them. John saw Jesus resurrected. He ate breakfast on the beach with the resurrected Jesus. He'd experienced all of the great highs of the Christian life. But John would come to know some of the great lows because there would be coming a time where it would seem like it was all unwinding. John was alive when the Roman Emperor Nero sent troops into Jerusalem to put down what had become kind of a raucous uprising of the Jews against the Romans. And put it down, they did. The Roman legions surrounded the city of Jerusalem on Passover, and they decided what they would do strategically was to let as many Jews go into the city because they were coming in for Passover rites and festivals and obligations. They would let as many Jews into the city as possible, and once they were all in, they built a wall around the city and dug a moat around the city and let no one out, resulting in massive starvation in Jerusalem. Thousands died. And for those that live, it certainly weakened their resolve. By the year 70 AD, the attackers breached Jerusalem's outer walls and they began a systematic ransacking of the entire city. The assault ultimately culminated in the burning and the destruction of the temple, and that served as the center of all of Judaism. In victory, the Romans slaughtered thousands. Of those that were spared from death, thousands were enslaved and sent to work in the mines of Egypt, and others were dispersed to arenas like the Roman Colosseum throughout their empire to be butchered for the amusement of the public. All of the sacred things of God, the temple's sacred relics, were taken by the Romans back and displayed in Rome as trinkets and part of the celebration of the victory. I started, I heard about this, and I began becoming interested in it. So I went to read the historian Josephus, he wrote about these things. You can go Google that. It's fascinating. Uh, Josephus was giving the accounts of the ransacking of the temple and how the Romans had set the temple on fire and how the Jews were doing their best to save it. And he said that during the burning of the temple, quote, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that could only be matched by the size of the tragedy. And when it was all over, up to a million had been slaughtered, corpses piled the streets, according to Josephus, all throughout the city. John lived through that. John might have been in that city. For all we know, John might have been in that temple. And it was likely at this point when John sat down to write his gospel, now some years after that event, he had already heard about the martyring of Peter and the martyring of Paul by Nero. According to John Fox in his 16th century book, New Testament Martyrs, he writes that his punishment for being a believer in Jesus John, who was in Ephesus at the time, was ordered to be sent to Rome, and it was affirmed that he was cast there into a cauldron of boiling oil. He was likely beaten and finally exiled to the island of Patmos. 
John, this very old man, had lost by this time his friends, his city, his people, his nation, his family, and his culture. All of it was gone. And, and so it turns out that John, who had seen, touched, heard, and knew the light of the world, had experienced in his life some darkness too, which if you pause to think about it, makes him not all that different than you and I. And that's why I've been waiting since we started this series to get to this line that he wrote. This line that he wrote, when you understand that he wrote it after all of these events, it sticks out to me more than any of the other lines, and I can't get it out of my head, and my goal is that you would walk out of here this Christmas Eve with this line burned into your head. Here's what he wrote. He started by saying, in him was life, past tense. And that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus, past tense. You might think, and heck, John would have every right to speak of life and hope in the past tense because it was all gone now. But then watch what he does. In him, in him was life. That life was the light of mankind. And then he says this, that light shines present tense. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, John knows all about the incredible stories of the virgin birth. Heck, remember, it was Jesus from the cross that said, John, essentially, take care of my mother. John knows all too well the stories about the inn being too full, the manger and the star and the wise men. Those are all incredible truths of Christmas written by real men who had real evidence to back up those accounts. And if you were aware of those things, who wouldn't want to record them for all of time to know? They're amazing stuff. But I've got to tell you, with the clarity that only time can bring, John sits down to record the story of Jesus' birth, and here's what he would want you to know this Christmas. The first is... I was there. I beheld him and touched him and I saw him and I heard him. And I have to tell you, in that man was life. Not just normal life. In that man, there was something different about that man. There was an energy about him. There was a life force about him that was different. In fact, I think that's what he's getting at when John says, in the beginning was the Word. He starts speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. That term, the Word, John is writing in Greek. In the Greek, that word means logos. John was saying that Jesus was the logos, which is really interesting because the, the intellectuals in the culture of John's day were trying to determine what lo the logos was. They were trying to determine what the principles of living were. And John, into that argument, goes... It was him. I knew him. I saw him. I heard him. I'm telling you, he's the logos. He's the light in the dark. He is the divine reason and purpose of life for all mankind. And that divine reason and purpose of life, it still shines in the darkness. And the darkness, John would say, look, I'm telling you, it has not overcome it. It will not overcome it. And it cannot overcome it. I think he would tell you that despite everything this world has tried to do to overcome this light, and we could go through the decades of history, the millennia of history, John says the darkness cannot overcome it. It does not win. You have never once opened your house, opened your door at night, and had the darkness flood in. The light always goes out. The light always wins. 
Caesar couldn't do it. Nero couldn't do it. The loss of Jerusalem couldn't do it. The burning down of the temple, never to be rebuilt, couldn't do it. The death of every single one of the ones of the disciples couldn't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. The cross couldn't do it. There is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness, John would say to you, listen to me, the darkness has not, will not, and cannot overcome this man. Here's John's story. The same light shines into our darkness, my darkness, your darkness. There's nothing that can put this out, and I'll tell you right now, I think John would want you to know this Christmas. In fact, I'm sure of it. You know, John gives himself away. We've been looking at this first chapter of his writing, but at the end of his book, he gives away the purpose for which he's been writing this. Here's what he says. He starts, he goes, because I think he'd want you to know this this Christmas Eve. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He wrote this, right? And if you go back and you look at John's book, man, I'd encourage you to do that. You could read the book of John tonight. The Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart tonight and going, man, there's something about this story. Go home and read it. John decides he's going to record seven of the miracles of Jesus, seven purpose signs of Jesus, seven places where where there was darkness and Jesus brought life. There was the darkness of loss and death and pain and shame. And in those stories, Jesus does something miraculous and brings light and also sheds some light on who he is. And so John closes. He goes, Jesus performed many other signs other than these seven ones I've already pointed out to you. They're not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You. John wrote this book for you to find life, the same kind of life that Jesus had, logos life, a life of purpose and weight and dignity and reason. It's yours. And this is where John gets personal. This old man, he concludes and says, I wrote this for you. These things are written that you may believe, not in the same way that you believe or make mental accedence to historical facts like George Washington or the destruction of the temple that we talked about. Those are historical facts. John is not saying, I want you to believe in them like that. The word he uses there in the Greek, John is saying, I want you to put all of your faith in all of your eggs in one basket. I want you to fully commit to and trust in this man. In fact, with the light thing, what he's trying to say is, I want you to orient yourself just like you would if a light suddenly came on in a dark room. You would reorient everything, the direction, your understanding. I want you to reorient yourself around that light. He writes to you this Christmas Eve with an agenda that you might believe and have life. Light brings clarity. Darkness has a way of bringing with it doubt. But John would want you to know that no matter your situation, 
this for you, no matter how bad it gets, how lost you might be, how alone you might feel on Christmas, no no matter how dark the depression, or how deep the debt, or how strained the marriage, or how prodigal your child, no matter how bad your prognosis, no matter how significant the loss, I think John would pull you close and say, I have to tell you, I was there, I saw him, I talked to him, there is a light for you that shines in the darkness, his name is Jesus. Has 